sociopolitical issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Ding dang, y'all. Welcome to episode 102 of You Don't Have to Yell. It is your bad boy of nonpartisan political podcasting here, continuing our review of the last 100 episodes of YDHTY. Now, back in January of 2020, before the pandemic, before George Floyd, before claims of widespread voter fraud, and before the riot at the Capitol, we only had to worry about the trillions and trillions of dollars of debt the U.S. had taken on over the years with no real plans to pay for it. In hindsight, it all seems very quaint, especially given the fact we've dumped trillions and trillions more on that pile. Now, back then, to provide a historical reference for our situation, I asked Benjamin Studebaker of Cambridge University on to discuss the effects austerity had on Great Britain as they attempted to deal with a similar situation back in the 1800s. And we ended up veering off topic and into some really interesting waters on what happens when governments stop taking care of their citizens. You should give it a listen, as it's almost like it queued up what would happen in the months that followed. It's episode 24 for those interested. At any rate, I had him back on to get his take on the past year, and boy, did he have a take. In our discussion, he hits on some themes that are really similar to the ones I discussed with Arjun in the last episode, which I will explain more in my final thoughts. Until then, listen to the smart man. Ben was on January of 2020. I invited you on to talk about the nature of debt and specifically how uh, Great Britain's response to debt back in the 1800s ultimately was the precursor to the decline of uh, the British Empire and the decline of Great Britain as a, as a real power. You know, the things we ended up talking about is kind of what does this all look like when it unwinds? You know, what does it look like when the current mega debt cycle we're in um, takes a turn for the, for the worse? And, and I'd say we're, we're, we're kind of watching it. We started talking January of 2020. A lot has happened since then. In the last like 18 some odd months, what do you think are the most significant developments that have happened? Well, I think the big thing is that we shut down the U.S. economy, which is the engine of the planet. You know, the United States is the consumer of last resort. If a country needs to develop, it needs to send its stuff somewhere. It needs somebody to buy that stuff. And there's nobody who's more willing and more able than the American consumer to do that. So when we turned off a huge amount of our economy, the global economy is in deep trouble if the American consumer can't continue to buy things. And so we had to do an enormous amount of stimulus to ensure that while our economy was partially shut down, the American consumer could continue to buy all of the crap that the world has to offer. Uh, if we didn't do that, 
then there would be major disruption to global supply chains, major disruption to the global trade system. And, and that system had to be saved. And I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, when the economic shutdown was occurring, there were a lot of people who went, oh, this is the moment when neoliberalism is going to end and, and the global trade system is going to come apart. But it didn't happen. It was prevented from happening by enormous, enormous stimulus funded with quantitative easing, funded with big, big support from the Federal Reserve. And, and what we kind of discovered is that the lesson that the United States took from 2008 is that quantitative easing works and that you can do a lot of it before you'll face a significant inflationary spike. And they leaned all the way into that. A lot of people have seen the bills that were written. You've seen the trillions and trillions of dollars in red ink, and they've really looked at that as a warning sign. You know, but in, in your mind, that's actually a good thing. That's us using, using the brakes, so to speak, or, or pulling the safety valve or whatever analogy you want to use. Am I right? Well, we are certainly in a higher tier level of experiment with this than we were in post-2008. Post-2008, we dipped a toe in. The Fed you know, printed off a few trillion dollars, bought some treasuries, bought some corporate bonds. You know, now the Fed had a program where if you're a municipal government, a state government, and you had a collapse in revenue... Uh, because of the slow year, and you wanted to avoid cutting your teachers, cutting your police, the Federal Reserve was going to extend credit to state governments, to municipal governments, everybody. There is a huge amount of Federal Reserve money that came out here. You know, the ordinary business is, gets a PPP loan to survive this, backed by the the capacity of the Federal Reserve to print that cash and buy those treasuries. Uh, Everybody at this point was getting stimulus money and piles of it. The crazy thing for me has been, you know, there was seeing the call for universal basic income, which has really kind of grown, you know, let's say over the last five years or so, and watching it effectively put into action with stimulus. And I don't know, do you feel like there's any... As a, uh, do you feel like as a proving ground for that sort of concept? Do you, what do you feel the 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 stimulus money showed us? Well, I think what the stimulus money shows is if you give people enough money, then their behavior will start to change a little bit. Uh, if you give people really really large amounts of money. Uh, so that they really have stability, then they start making decisions with a level of freedom that they didn't previously have. So mm -hmm. we noticed that there were some shortages for workers who work in very low-wage jobs, because if you work in a very low-wage job, then the federal unemployment uh, supplement did make it significantly better for you to not be in employment uh, if you were in the kind of less than $12 an hour range, especially. People yeah. who were above $12 an hour recent studies suggest those people still, by and large, had enough reason to go back to work that they chose to if they could. But if you were under 12 bucks an hour, and that's you know, millions of people in the United States, then the incentives well, were not quite there for you. Mm -hmm. And I think it, it illustrates that if we did a UBI that was, that was large enough, then we would have a real difficulty getting people to do those low-wage jobs. And that might be a good thing because we, we pay those people much less than they can realistically live off. 
Well, you know, without a doubt, and I'm going to, I'm going to throw a lot, I'm going to kind of try to pack a lot into this little concept because, you know, I, I'll give you a great example. And this is, this is something I've, I've said before on this podcast, which is if you look at the Walton family, so the heirs to Walmart, they are amongst the richest people in the world. Um, they are wealthy because of their corporate structure and because their practices are such that they prevent people from gaining full-time employment. So they prevent people from getting benefits. Uh, they can provide low wages because of our minimum wage standard. And a lot of these people end up living below the poverty line or at the poverty line and end up shopping at Walmart. So the government, in a way, is subsidizing Walmart. Now, you take that from the top end. Well, why else are they wealthy? Well, they're wealthy because the stock market is doing well. Why is the stock market doing well? The stock market's doing well because the government uh, has been able to pump lots and lots of liquidity, keep very, very low interest rates, which ultimately benefit people who have more of their money in assets. And so uh, in, in a lot of ways, I, I definitely agree with the concept that that a universal basic income to almost serve as 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 government being competition or wage competition to make sure employers are providing a livable wage i totally agree with that you know the flip side of it is is i don't feel like we have enough coming down on the top end to push down that other end of things which is this this deficit we're running in large part because of our because because of our tax policy and because we just simply refuse to tax people. Any any thoughts on that? Yeah, because we think that they'll they'll move their money all over the place. This this regime of global economic integration that we have increasingly been constructing post World War II makes it so easy for people to move for rich people to move their money around the globe. And I think it's really created a kind of tiered system among the rich because mm -hmm. you have rich people who are extremely mobile, people in finance who can take their money very quickly within the day from one country to another. You've got the big industry that can relocate, but it takes a while. It takes investment to move a plant, to move uh, factory parts and, and machines and so on. Mm -hmm. You can pack that stuff up and move it, but it takes a decision and it takes a few months or a few years to fully relocate. Yeah, And then you've got the stuff that is a little bit more tied down to a particular place that doesn't have quite the same level of mobility. You're thinking about retailers. Retailers have a lot of different yeah, you know, a big box retailer has got a lot of different sites, so it's not uh, so heavily affected by what's going on in one town in the United States. But Walmart can't leave the United States; it can't go to a different country. It's still, if it wants access to the American consumer market, it needs to operate big box stores in the United States, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and then you've got the little mom and pop store, which is dependent not just on the United States but on the particular community in which it's based. And I think. One of the things that we've seen in the pandemic is that it dramatically favors people who are more mobile and companies and rich people who are more mobile. And a lot of the debate that's gone on has been on a class conflict within the rich between rich people who have mobile assets that are benefiting enormously and rich people who have fixed assets that require that the government allow their business to be open. And often because they are running closer margins, they tend to pay less. So they're more affected by the disincentive to work. So for instance, Walmart at this point, I think has a minimum wage of $11 an hour, right? But of course, there are going to be the smaller retailers in these towns. They'll often pay less than 11. They'll try to pay 7.25 or 8 if they're in a state that allows them to do that. 
those guys are getting absolutely pulverized because they're paying a wage that's so uncompetitive that they can't attract anybody, at least not anybody who's who's particularly good at the job. Uh, and so I think one of the really interesting developments is the different pressure that it's put on different rich people occupying different levels of mobility within the economy and how it has created a fierce debate between them. Because if you're Amazon, you're completely cool with people staying home for very extended periods of time. It's great for your business. Uh, if you're Walmart, it's a little bit more awkward. And if you're a mom and pop store or a small restaurant, it's extremely awkward. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's interesting you bring that up too, because if you look at the sectors that are the most mobile, they're also the sectors that have the least problem with providing a livable wage. I mean, even Amazon, you know, their lowest paid worker is still doing better than to your point, like the lowest paid worker at a mom and pop shop. Do you, do you feel though, kind of getting into this mom and pop shop here, do you feel like almost in a lot of ways, if we're to, if we're to have a just society, you know, if we're to have, if we're to have a society where everybody leaves, li has a livable wage from what they do, is there room for those mom and pop shops that just can't, can't get by and, and again, pay that livable wage? Part of the, the trouble here, right, is that the mom and pop shop under the kind of economy that we run can't provide livable wages, just doesn't have the scale, doesn't have the capacity. And yeah. from an economic standpoint, you know, it's, it's deeply wrong for people to work for the kinds of wages that most mom and pop shops pay. At the mm -hmm. same time, if you ask people, do you want to live in a town where if you buy something, it's got to be from a big box store or Amazon and there's nothing else uh, and you can only go to chain restaurants and there's nothing else. Most people don't want that either. So I think that the, the move would be to have the government do more to support uh, some of these smaller shops paying competitive wages. And to do that, the government would need to do some stuff to level the playing field. Um, but because of the way our competition laws are written and because of the way uh, the amount of leverage which the more mobile firms have over government policy because of their capacity to move, the government has a very difficult time summoning the political will to create the kind of incentive structure which would enable mom and pop shops to function in a non-parasitic, pernicious way. Yeah. And so it's unfortunate because I think a lot of the people who run these shops are well-meaning, but they've been put in a situation where they can only operate if they behave in a parasitic fashion. Yeah. You know, it's funny. So my brother owns, owns a small business. So he owns a bakery uh, in Berkeley. And they work Ber Berkeley, California. And they were open throughout the pandemic. Um, the, the difference between, I think my brother's business and a lot of other businesses is he provides a very high end product. So people who are, I don't know what he charges for a pie, but every time he tells me it's, I'm just a guest, it's over 30 bucks for a pie to give you an idea. It's, I mean, it's good pie. Don't get me wrong, but it's a lot for a pie. So, and as a result though, he also pays his you know, the, the minimum wage hikes have not affected him because, or would not affect him because he pays high enough. He provides them with health insurance. He provides them with health insurance. And a lot of that is due to the fact he can run a high margin business. Um, it seems to me like, again, if I'm, a, if I'm thinking of starting a mom and pop shop, or I'm thinking of the future of mom and pop shops, those, those, those specialized, luxury items are, are, are the ones that are going to survive. And maybe, you know, your corner store that is selling the same, you know, Kool-Aid and the same chips 
as Walmart is is probably living on borrowed time. Right, we're getting more of a, more of a two tier economy as economic inequality increases. Uh, it is becoming harder and harder to rely on the ordinary person to provide consumer spending growth that's reliable and stable because people are having to borrow huge amounts of money to continue to provide this consumption. It's becoming less and less reliable to rely on the American consumer, the ordinary American consumer to buy stuff. Meanwhile, over the last 30 years, the luxury market has grown at about an average of 6% a year. That's a lot better than the overall GDP of the, of the economy. So it's much more reliable if you're someone starting a business to go into luxuries, if you can do it and provide a product that is uh, attractive to that consumer base. Of course, the consequence of this is that we're moving into an economy where there's a chunk of people buying luxury goods, and there's a chunk of people buying the stuff that's for everybody else. And traditionally in America, we don't do that. Traditionally, the things that are really cool that we think of as really cool, you know, quintessential American products are stuff that everybody could buy. Everybody can buy Coca-Cola. Everybody can buy a Big Mac. And now we're getting a, a more differentiated economy where if you're rich, you can go to a small little mom and pop shop. But if you're not, then you got to buy something from Amazon or buy something from Walmart. Yeah. And I'd also add, you know, if we take Berkeley, California as an example, what you're talking about is a very wealthy population to begin with. And that leaves out a large swath of the United States that just doesn't have that sort of wealth concentrated in it. The other thing you said that really jumped out at me too, was the idea that the wealthy can move their money. And I think when a lot of people talk about taxing the rich, the thing they don't understand is that the the rich have the knowledge and the and the and and the means to figure out where their money can exist and ultimately avoid taxes so tax stock transactions they're going to move it to real estate tax real estate they'll move it to art it just keeps jumping around and when i combine that with the presence of cryptocurrency now you know the ability to effectively invest in a borderless asset that can be transferred internationally without any interference or, or, or monitoring from banks, um, you know, I really see some tremendous difficulties in being able to you know, rein in or being able to, to take back some of that income in the form of taxes. And, and I, my question for you is, you know, given the complexity of the world, given the, the world's borders are breaking down, is it realistic to assume that governments are going to be able to level the playing field via tax policy, or is that just passe now? I think that uh, starting with tax policy is, is a mistake at this point. I think that uh, oftentimes there are people who have, a, have, a, have cool policy ideas, but aren't being realistic about what's going on politically. And then there are people who are politically realistic, but they don't have a realistic understanding of just how bad the economic problem is, how bad the level of inequality is, how much instability this creates, how much resentment uh, and hatred it fuels across every area of social life. Uh, I think that Ultimately, if we were to do some kind of redistributive scheme, it would have to begin in some kind of disruption to capital mobility. And a disruption to capital mobility would be a, dis a huge disruption for our lives because all of the stuff that we buy comes from supply chains that are increasingly global, inc increasingly international. And so any attempt to disrupt that mobility 
would precipitate a period of stagflation where prices for things would go through the roof because the stuff that we normally buy, uh, we would not be able to get. Uh, and at the same time, our wages would not be increasing. So we'd be buying less and the prices would be going up. Uh, that would be a, a deep shock. No politician wants to be responsible for that because you can't win an election once you've done that, uh, unless there's some kind of precipitating crisis, which would be an excuse. And what we saw is that coronavirus could have been that crisis. During the period when coronavirus was ravaging the global economy, someone like Donald Trump could have said, China's responsible for this, I blame China, and therefore we're not going to trade with China anymore, and we're going to cut the trade links. And, and plausibly, he could have tried to blame uh, you know, coronavirus for the economic fallout of a disruption to that trade relationship. Even Donald Trump did not have a willingness to do something like that, and I don't think anybody does. The term I've been using a lot lately on the show is the idea of an operating system. You know, the idea that every society and every government for that matter operates on a set of rules that basically execute in perpetuity. And so when I look at the US operating system, that was really written at the end of World War II, you know, written at a time when we were 25% of GDP, we owned 75% of the world's gold. Um, and uh, and, and as a result, I think we painted ourselves into an unsustainable corner. To your point about political expedience, it, what's right and what's necessary and what's politically expedient are so far apart. You'd, you'd really have to blow up the whole system in a way to, to get back to where we need to be. Yeah. And part of the trouble is, let's say the United States did try to lead some kind of coalition of states to build a new international system that is more stable. Uh, because the United States doesn't have as much leverage as it used to have, it's unclear whether the United States still has the capacity to do that. And it also has a credibility problem because there's so much internal strife within the United States that anything a presidential administration says, almost anything, is likely to be contradicted by the opposing party and by the next president. So it's very hard to make an international agreement with the United States that you can trust if you're a foreign country at this time. And that's part of why we haven't had any major new international agreements. Uh, we retool some of the old ones a little bit, the ones that have been around for a long time that we know people are unlikely to mess with. But it's very hard. I mean, you think about the Paris climate deal, because the US Senate would never confirm that as a treaty, it had to be done as an informal agreement that's not legally binding. Uh, that's, that's where the United States is at this point. So you've got, on the one hand, a lack of state capacity because the United States is so internally divided. And then on the other hand, because of the rise of China, it's less clear that the United States has enough power to be that leader, uh, even if the United States were internally committed. And so we get into this, this dilemma of, of which is it? What's the problem? Is it that the United States is internally divided? So even though it has the capacity, it can't bring itself to use it. Or has the United States lost the capacity because of its relative decline compared to China, Japan, and some other states? Uh, and it's not entirely sure which one of those is the problem or if both of them are the problem. If I had to put my bet on one or the other, and I think it's a mix of both, to be frank, um, but I would say internal strife is probably the bigger threat. Coronavirus certainly could have looked like that catalyst, like that thing that was finally going to turn the key, unwind everything, and then we'd have to start anew. What I see as the most likely event that's going to trigger uh, an ultimate kind of shock to the system is going to be over the debt ceiling. 
Um, because if you look, there's the only time the U.S. credit rating has ever been reduced was when we was in 2011 when we couldn't reach an agreement on the debt ceiling. So the, the markets have told us the only thing that they worry about in terms of American debt is whether we're going to take it on or not. And the refusal to take on more debt is lethal. And so, you know, the way I the way I look at it, you look at the nature of the the two parties. And to your point, you know, the goal of of the two party, the, the goal of both parties right now is to stymie the other. And uh, and the, you know, I look at the 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 general uh, composition of the Republican Party, which is very let's you know let's say more concerned about the debt, more more hawkish when they're the minority, I should say, and. You know, I see it as 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 almost you know just a game of Russian roulette. Like eventually, that debt ceiling debate is going to hit a point, and that is when the markets lose confidence in the dollar, and that is when we start to see real problems. You know, in my mind, the number one issue is changing the structure so consensus is the goal rather than this trench warfare we're we're living in now. I think what we're saying is is that there's a lot of willingness to push it right up until the point where you'll create so much economic disruption that the elections become unwinnable. And at that point, the election becomes the major disciplining mechanism on the two parties. Mm -hmm. And what, what I think we've seen is that they're willing to do just enough to not trigger an economic situation in which there's absolutely no possibility of re-election. Yeah. And so what they'll do at the debt ceiling is they'll push it to the limit to try to extract things from each other. But before it gets to the point where it could trigger a genuine crisis that would cause the people responsible for it to be voted out, uh, they, they pull back. And a similar kind of thing with the trade relationship with China, they'll push it, they'll flog it, they'll uh, make a thing out of it. Uh, but as soon as you get to the point where if you were to take it further, you would really disrupt the flow of, of stuff and money uh, and really cause an economic crisis that could be politically threatening. At that point, they beg off. And I think a lot of it is a kind of aesthetic posturing that everybody's doing to try to, that both of the parties want their bases to believe that they're doing something about this big problem. Yeah. And they want yeah. their bases to believe that they're really trying, but what they'll do is they'll push it just far enough to establish credibility that they, they really were trying to change it uh, and then back off in the face of, of a really, really serious negative shock uh, and the possibility thereof. Similar to what happened with Syriza in Greece during the Euro crisis, where Syriza gets elected and goes, we're going to really push it. We're going to fight the, the Germans. We're not going to go along. And of course, then you get backed into a corner because the Germans go, really? You're really going to uh, pull out of the Euro and trigger that big economic crisis? You think you can win another election after you do that? Really? Uh, and Syriza goes, ah, we're not sure we can win another election if we do that. And they beg off. And this has been the, the issue with democracies in the last uh, 20, 30 years, at least. Uh, there's just a, a real skittishness about taking an economic decision, which is politically suicidal. There will be talk about doing it. They'll suggest that they would do it, because if they talk about doing it, they don't have to actually take the risk of doing it and the political risk of it actually unraveling in a way that is fatal to their careers. Yeah, but you know, when I look at the, the the people getting elected to office now, it seems like we're getting closer. You know, like I, I look at, and, and I'll be I'll be even handed across the parties. I look at AOC or or, or Marjorie Taylor Greene, and you know both are effectively like GameStop candidates in a way where they just get an enormous amount of money because they take such a hardline stance. Do you feel like it'll get to the point where? there aren't enough cooler heads in the room to prevail. 
Well, I think that I don't think the heads are actually hot. I think that these guys put on a big show for people. And what what they've gotten very good at is making the show more believable and more convincing. Because yeah. increasingly in electoral politics, you don't have a lot of swing voters. The goal is to turn out the base. To turn mm -hmm. out the base, you have to seem like you're really serious. You're really going to do the radical thing. If you get in, you're really going to do it. Uh, and what someone like AOC or Green does is, is they create this image that there is actually a radical intention. I don't think that it's really there. I think that when you really look at what these parties actually stand for, the people to look at are the people who get all the blame for the fact that the radical things don't happen, the Joe Manchins, right? I think yeah. if you look at the, at the party itself, you know, the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, the actual, uh, the actual position of the party is to be found in what the moderates do. The moderates are framed as being not loyal to the party, not actually following the party line. But I think what, what really happens is that when you get a vote, everybody in the Democratic Party wants to appear to the base to be wanting to do the really radical thing. And you find the handful of people in the party who can take, who, who would even maybe benefit from voting against it in their home state, who certainly would not face the same kinds of political risks for seeming disloyal to the base voters. And those are the people who ultimately will get the blame or credit, depending on who you're asking, for the thing not going through. Like, think about with the Republicans and their attempt to repeal and replace the ACA, right? They said for years, oh, we're going to do it. We promise to do it. We really want to do it. We definitely do, right? And then it happens to be the case that it's defeated by one vote from John McCain, someone who is, of course, retiring and not up for re-election. And just that one vote is the reason that it doesn't happen. Everyone else gets to say, oh, yes, I was for it. I was going to do it. I was going to do it. I think that we really find the two parties' hearts and souls in those moderates who refuse to do this stuff. 40%, folks. That's the number of people in America who don't identify with either major party, bigger than either of them in terms of voters. 60% is the number of Americans who feel another major party is needed. Both are a signal something's wrong, and both are a signal Americans are looking for something more, and that is why you listen to You Don't Have to Yell. Now, nothing's going to change until we open up the two-party system to real political competition. And in the right numbers, we can make this happen. So here are two ways you can help. Number one, if you dig the content on YDHTY and you know someone else who would, please share this show with them. The goal of YDHTY is not just to push for electoral reform, but to get the center back into the conversation and this podcast grows by word of mouth. Number two, if you want to take action in your state, visit rankthevote.us. It's an organization focused on growing the ranked choice voting movement in all 50 states. And while there are no shortages of ways to reform elections in this country, ranked choice voting is by far the most practical and effective way to make elected officials accountable to the majority of voters, not just the parties. 2020 is going to be a decade of change, and I hope you'll choose to join me in making the change for the better. And now, back to the episode. It sounds to me like, you know, the way the parties market themselves is they market themselves to these polarized uh, fringes 
because that's going to guarantee votes. Those people yeah. are, are, are going to turn out and they're going to vote one way and they know how they're going to vote. And then the moderates almost serve as, you know, let's call it like a seatbelt in a way where if things get too crazy, they're going to stop that thing from happening. They're the scapegoats. The moderates yeah. are the scapegoats. I think the party itself, both of the parties are still quite moderate, quite yeah. moderate, but they need to market themselves as radical because they are in a primary system. And the primary system compels the parties to act more radical than they are, which is why so much of this crazy radicalization in U.S. politics can be traced to when the generation that was elected on the primary system first began getting into leadership roles. The first Speaker of the House who was elected initially on a primary rather than through the old system was Newt Gingrich in the 90s. This, this set of primary people, people who got in through primaries, they understand uh, politics entirely differently from the older generation from the, the post-war era, because they understand that to, to get win a primary, you've got to make those base voters happy. But to stay in office, you have to win general elections. And that means you can't be disruptive to people's lives because people don't like disruption. People get spooked by disruption. So what they do is they present themselves as very radical, and then they engage in uh, more moderate politics when they're elected. And at scale, they find individuals who can, who can uh, channel different elements of that for the for the voting public. So Manchin is there as reassurance that, of course, the Democratic Party isn't going to cause trouble. And AOC is there as reassurance for the base that, of course, it is going to cause trouble. Uh, yeah. But where is the heart and soul of the Democratic Party? The, the point of the Democratic Party is to do the Manchin stuff while looking like it's trying to do the AOC stuff. Yeah, it's like pro wrestling. You talked about the primary system. Can you explain that a little bit? As, as far as how that how that resulted in Gingrich and what the, the speakers looked like prior to that or how they were elected prior to that? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, prior to 1968, we had the old boys networks in the parties where if you got uh, chosen to run for stuff, it was because party hacks decided that they liked you and they thought you were good and reliable and would do what they wanted. And so they moved you up in the party. So it's all a patronage system in both of the parties prior to 68. In the 1968 presidential election, there were catastrophes because increasingly the parties had been trying to generate legitimacy for their presidential nominees by having non-binding primaries in some states. Uh, and in these in, uh, at these conventions, in both the Republican and Democratic cases, people who did not win a majority of primary votes got the nominations. In the Democratic case, Hubert Humphrey, who won virtually nothing in primaries, finishing way, way behind uh, McGovern, uh, loads, of, loads of different people in 68. Yeah. It was nowhere close, right? And then in the Republican case, Richard Nixon, who finished third in primary voting behind Ronald Reagan, who was first in 1968 in Republican primary voting. And... Um, uh, Rockefeller, Nelson Rockefeller, who came second, right? Yeah. So uh, you had a riot after the Democratic convention in Chicago over uh, Humphrey because Humphrey was not anti-Vietnam. Humphrey was Johnson's vice president, so he was very much a continuation of the status quo. And you also had a lot of people upset about the Republican nomination. Hillary Clinton attended the 1968 Republican convention and was, was completely miserable that Rockefeller lost to Nixon. So a lot of young people were very disenchanted with all of this. And the response was to switch to a primary system where not only would presidential candidates be picked through primaries, but people running for offices up and down you know, in the Senate, in the House, they would be picked through primaries. So yeah. this completely changes who you got to please. Now, instead of you know this kind of patronage network, you increasingly have to please these primary voters and turn them out. 
right? But of yeah. course, you still have a patronage system. You still have party hacks. You still have all of these people who have to have working relationships with each other. So what you get is a system where you have to act like you are radical so that the primary voter will like you, while in practice being a good party hack and doing what they want you to do behind the scenes so that you can move up and have good relationships with the other people who are already in the party. And you see this in legislatures in particular, because in a legislature, you really got to work with other people. It's not like the executive branch where a governor has you know, a lot of, of autonomy. Uh, you know, if you're in Congress and you want to get the nice committees and you want to get opportunities, you've got to make it nice with the leadership of your party. And if you don't, you get neglected and you get marginalized. So when someone like AOC comes in, her, once she's elected, her career incentive is to work with Nancy Pelosi and to work with Joe Biden. And what have we been hearing over the last few months? AOC is saying all the time, Joe Biden is the most progressive president. He's so progressive. He's been so great. I've been so impressed by him. And that's not what the primary base voters you know, of the you know, Bernie, Bernie Krat left are saying about Joe Biden. They're mad at Joe Biden because Joe Biden didn't fight for minimum wage. And Joe yeah. Biden uh, is, is now calling for the uh, federal unemployment benefits to be cut uh, prematurely, encouraging the state governors to cut them months before their deadline in September. So the left is really ticked at Joe Biden over those things. But what is AOC doing? AOC is going, oh, we should get behind Joe Biden. He's so progressive. He's so he's so great. Uh, and this is this is the little the little double bind that you got, where you have a on the one hand a primary constituency that you have to satisfy, and on the other hand you have a party machine that you need to climb and you have to somehow handle both of these at once. And the people, you know, someone like Nancy Pelosi, who comes from San Francisco, also comes from a very blue district early in her career, also had a reputation for being very radical, especially on social issues, understands perfectly well the situation that AOC is in and the need that AOC has to do both of these things at once. And so I think there's there's really a lot of sim symbiosis between Pelosi and AOC. What AOC is, is a new generation's version of a Pelosi with the aesthetic of the millennial generation, with the style of a millennial, uh, with that kind of Instagram presence, with the lingo that millennials like, uh, the kind of marketing that millennials do. But what we're really getting is a new version of the Democratic Party, which is the same old version of the Democratic Party. Yeah, just with a different veneer on it. Yeah. When you look at a lot of these candidates we talk about, a lot of them did not win a majority vote in their first primary. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene won with 40% of the Republican primary. So, and given the way the districts are carved, that primary is often the general. You know, so you have right. folks who, who didn't even win a majority of their own party who are going to the House. Do you feel like a reform like ranked choice voting could moderate that primary effect? Because in my mind, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene was in an eight-person race. If seven of those people represented the median Republican voter, there was no differentiator. So as a result, the kook's going to win because the kook's going to attract the kook. Um, and so, you know, again, my question is, would a do you feel like something like ranked choice voting in a primary could actually have a moderating effect and could ultimately... Uh, result in in candidates that maybe don't have to take that partisan hard line in order to 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 win elections. Well, we do see ranked choice voting in California, 
where I think I think the results are kind of mixed. There are a lot of districts that are districted in such a way that it really is the case that most of the primary voters in those districts want somebody who's quite, quite out there. Yeah. And I think it shouldn't be underestimated just how weird primary voters are relative to the general pop public. They're yeah. a very small percentage of the of the general population. And yet in the American mind now, if you didn't do primaries, if you selected it through the old, uh, you know, old boys network where that we used to have, that would be fundamentally undemocratic. So we think it's more democratic to let this minority of primary voters pick uh, than, than it would be to, to have the parties pick through some kind of, of expert driven system. And therefore, if you want to reform your way out of it, your, your hands are kind of tied because all you can really do is, is try to open up the primaries to people who are not, uh, are not primary, typical primary voters. You can open it up to people who are uh, registered with the other party or registered as independent. You can do open primaries to try to loosen it up a little bit. But it's still the case that the turnout for primaries is so much lower because they're weird primaries that you get political nerds in them. So even if you run an open primary, you've got political nerds and political nerds are statistically much more likely to be extreme on every issue. So I think the primary system fundamentally is, is the culprit, but it's, it's a kind of reform that once you've done it, you can't undo it. You can't yeah. really go home again once you've done it. And there's a limit to the stuff you can do to counteract it because it, there's a self-selection element to the primary where the people who are going to choose to vote in a primary are going to be the people who will have the more out there positions. Yeah. Uh, but the, you know, the, the news on the other side is that the people who, who win these primaries, generally speaking, if, can't be successful unless they fake it. If they're actually serious about what they're saying in the primary, then when they get to the House or they get to the Senate, they're going to be heavily marginalized mm -hmm. by everybody in the Senate. Uh, and indeed, they often have a stake in making it appear as if they've been marginalized, because if it looks like, say, Nancy Pelosi hates AOC, then that makes AOC look more credible. Right. But it's valuable to the party for someone like AOC to look kind of marginal, because that means the party has figures in it that are anti-establishment. And the party mm. wants its base voters to think that there's an anti-establishment wing of the party that really you know, poses a threat, right? What it really is, is it's a generational difference. It's millennials versus boomers, and it's millennials who are not substantively that different from boomers. But if someone who talks like you and has your style is able to eventually get into leadership positions and you identify with that person because they project a style that is similar to yours that reminds you of the way you talk or the way your friends talk, then when that person gets into a leadership position, you take that as a victory. And you take that as a victory even if nothing substantively changes. By the time it's all done, all you get is this aesthetic shift in language and style. How do you reform that or do you reform it? It's very difficult to reform, I think, at this point. Uh, I, you know, I think that one thing to do is to, to increase by whatever means you can the set of people voting in primaries, to make uh, primaries more like general elections, to make them less weird. Very difficult to do in practice. And I think that, that uh, ultimately, the thing that will bring unity back to the United States if we get unity back in the United States. It's unlikely to come from our own political system. It's likely to come from some kind of external shock, which forces some sort of crisis management. So we saw with this, you know, despite the 
huge amount of disagreement about stimulus during, say, the Obama administration, or even during the early Trump administration with that huge disagreement about infrastructure. Once there was a real shock, a real threat to the economy of the United States, then all of a sudden there was a willingness to do the CARES Act, which was an enormous, enormous amount of stimulus, uh, not paid for in any substantive way, uh, not something that you would have thought anybody would pass prior to that. And I think that that's really you know, where, where we're at here. It's interesting to hear Joe Biden get credit for this when it was Donald Trump that originally passed CARES and originally did the PPP. I mean, all of the, all of the really radical stuff, insofar as it's radical, began before Joe Biden was elected and was mainly continued by Biden's stimulus. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of continuity here between not just with uh, the seemingly extreme and moderate wings of the yeah. parties, but also between the two parties. A lot of continuity. And so, you know, maybe getting back to a bigger topic that I that I brought up earlier on, do you feel like that moderate that that moderate uh, power center, let's call it, in both parties, do you feel like they are that that their incentive structure is such that they are going to be able to steer us away from disaster? Or do you feel like political expedience is going to win out over maybe some reforms we should put in and we're going to head towards some great catastrophic shock? I think part of the way it works is that because the radicals are, uh, the radicals have to be really, really stylistically radical to come off as radical. So the radicals kind of inherently marginalize themselves in their own reform proposals. So one of the ways in which a lot of these reforms have become politically intractable is that they've become associated with stylistic radicals, right? And those stylistic radicals have limited national appeal because they come from strange districts that are bright blue or bright red. And so when you attach something like, say, you know, Medicare for all to someone like AOC, who is from a bright blue district in New York City, uh, the fact that you've attached it to that kind of political figure and that political figure's style you know, diminishes the capacity of that reform to catch on nationally. So one of the ways you kind of shut these reforms down is by attaching them to polarizing figures, right? Uh, but the polarizing figure doesn't need to really support the reform in any real sense. I mean, AOC has said that Medicare for all is just a negotiating tactic to get a public option. She said that during the uh, last presidential election, right? So the substance is not that radical, but the style is. And I think that, uh, what, what we're seeing is that there is a huge domestic incentive politically to create the perception of serious conflict between Republicans and Democrats and between the extreme and moderate wings of, of the parties, that the parties want us to believe that this conflict exists because this conflict mobilizes us to vote, mobilizes fringe voters, uh, people who are in the base to come out and vote and makes more and more people over time act like base voters because more and more people begin to see the other party as potentially an existential threat or the other wing of the party in the primary as potentially an existential threat. When really in practice, the, the substantive policy on most issues is about the same uh, across all of these different groups. And so what, what, I, what I think we're seeing is that there really isn't much capacity for the U.S. government to reform of its own accord, to reform on its own in a vacuum through its own institutional processes. What it needs is some kind of prompting disaster 
right? And whenever this prompting disaster comes, everyone goes, oh, this is the transcendent moment when finally, finally, we're going to get the, the package of reforms that we need because the, the disaster, the crisis creates this moment where it can happen. But what we get is not that, we get the bare minimum, the bare minimum to get through the crisis, to get through the disaster, right? And so people talk about how huge these stimulus packages have been, and they are, they are huge. But the function of the stimulus package is not to rearrange our economy. It's not to redistribute a huge amount of wealth. It's not to, to change anything, really. What it is, is is to create enough stimulus that the global economy can survive this period where there's disruption due to shutdowns. And those supply chains can continue to function. They don't get cut. They don't ossify. And you can continue to have this capital mobility. The capital mobility doesn't get disrupted by serious conflict. And so the kind of thing that could disrupt it would be serious conflict, something like, say, uh, China going into Taiwan. But short of that, I don't think that the American political system is very dynamic at this point. It, it, its incentive structure is mainly about keeping the set of people who are in office in office and ensuring that the next set of people who come into office, whatever intentions they may have to change things, are subjected to a set of incentives which will gradually cause them to behave like the set of people who are currently in office. This, is, this might be a controversial statement, but is, is that just the way things are supposed to be? Because you know, when I look at the American population at the, on the whole, you know, most people are politically disengaged for the most part. You know, they might have a political opinion, um, but they're not necessarily active. They don't necessarily immerse themselves in policy. And, and, and in a lot of cases, you know, the, the election for, for president is more like a ritual sacrifice to the corn God. You know, if the rains are here, we're going to keep the guy. And if not, then stone him. And is that just the way societies function? Is this working as intended? And is there, and, and is there not a better way to do things? Well, it's the way democracy functions. And, and democracy is very stable in part because it has a wonderful ability to pin stuff on particular people, right? When something goes wrong, we don't turn on democracy. We go, this president is the bad one, or these particular people in Congress are bad. Throw those bums out, change the party, right? So if you have a regime where all of the different parts are relatively simpatico, but each of them is capable of pinning all of the blame on just one part, then blame never redounds back upon the regime itself. Yeah. So the regime is never subjected to any serious crisis of legitimacy. People are just constantly disgusted with this leader or this party or this part of the party, right? Uh, and the advantage is that this enables you to continue to do the same thing for very long periods of time without a lot of disruption. And it, there's a lot of credibility because you know that policy is broadly speaking going to be the same no matter who wins for long periods of time. This works when you've got a consensus that, that it works. It works in the opening decades of the post-war era when what we've constructed you know, seems to many people to work reasonably well. But once it stops seeming to you to work reasonably well, once you get to a point where there are major problems with it and you really would like to redesign it, uh, then what you find is that this is an enormous obstacle to that redesign because this system is able to find ways of kicking the can that you wouldn't believe exist. You know, mm -hmm. Every time there's a crisis, people can't believe that we can find ways to kick the can. But yes, we can. Absolutely, we can. There well, are so many ways to kick the can. <laughs> So many ways. And so what happens is that these problems get worse in the background, worse in the background, and everyone goes, well, of course, there's got to be a breaking point. There's got to be a moment where we have to face up to the fact that we have this intense social division. We got climate change. We got you know, 
huge economic inequality. Sooner or later, we have to face, no, no, we don't. We don't have to face up to it. We don't have to face up to it because we have enough money that when the moment of crisis comes, we can throw enough money out that enough people will go along to get along for a little while. And it, it yeah. doesn't take much. They bought everybody with little tiny checks of just a you know, couple thousand dollars. And that's all it took to get everybody to go along with this crazy year that drove people through the roof on mental, you know, mental health, going through the roof, people not able to see their parents as their parents you know, with dementia forget who they are in old folks' homes and die of loneliness. You know, this is the year that we had. And all it took was just a little bit of PPP and a little bit of, of stimulus checks and, and people just went along with it. And not only did they go along with it, they then turned on each other and blamed each other for it. We, we got into huge amounts of uh, partisan nastiness, racial nastiness. Uh, and that's that's how it works. You get everybody mad at each other. You get everybody mad at your neighbor. You know, is your neighbor wearing a mask? Or are they not wearing a mask? Mm -hmm. uh, if your neighbor's not doing what you think they should be doing, they're the problem. And you know, forget about the government and, and what the government could or should be doing better. Uh, this responsabilization of the individual, uh, that's another theme in this pandemic that I found just uh, really something, just how effectively the government was able to get us to take personal responsibility for public health, something which theoretically the government is responsible for. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, and especially getting even half of America to do what they're told to do is is astounding. I think there's there's something really interesting you said there which is the linchpin of it all, is the ability to fund that stimulus. Is it feasible that that funding mechanism disappears in well, the near future? I think that the, the trouble is that America is the consumer of last resort, and it's the anchor state for the entire global system. So other countries are very reliant on the continued capacity of the United States to play this role. Other countries need the United States to provide security for the movement of all of this stuff. And they need the United States to buy stuff when they're making things and, and they need a market for it. The American consumer is there and ready and willing with an open wallet and a big house with lots of space in it to, to buy that crap and store it, right? So I think the problem is that the whole world is stuck dependent on the United States to continue to buy the stuff that it makes. And because of this, the whole world is, is in a precarious position where if it were to try to make, make do without the United States, uh, if it were to try to live in a world where the United States doesn't consume all of this stuff, uh, that would be extremely disruptive for them and extremely disruptive for their own economies and their own political regimes, which don't, in many cases, have the benefit of a democratic system, which allows them to pass blame around to individual parts, right? The Chinese government, if it goes through a single year of negative economic growth, faces an existential regime threat. It, it can't just pass blame on some other party or some, you know, it tries to, it tries to, through corruption trials, pin the blame for things on individuals within the party who are corrupt, who are being rooted out. But it's very hard in other kinds of systems to get the blame to stay away from the regime type. So I think because of this, there's, there's a kind of, of too big to fail element to the United States from a global perspective. And for other countries, there's a lack of an alternative player. China isn't rich enough or powerful enough to provide that anchoring role, to provide the set of global public goods, which the United States provides by you know, defending all of these trade links and maintaining them and maintaining governments in the different countries that will be favorable to participating within that system. Wow. This is so much worse than I thought. I asked you back 
because I felt we left so much on the table and I feel like there is multiple, multiple tables worth a virtual banquet of things that we've left on this one. Um, so we're probably gonna have to do this again is that's, that's my, my long winded way of saying that. So it has been absolutely fascinating. Thanks. Thanks again for coming on and thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. Love to do it again. If you like this episode, please leave it a review, share with your friends, neighbors, relatives, and enemies. And if you have not subscribed yet, what are you waiting for? Click that button. It says either subscribe or follow. It depends on the device. And you will get a piping hot, fresh episode of You Don't Have to Yell delivered straight to your phone, tablet, or wherever else you're listening to it every week. What I found most interesting about this conversation, and it goes back to the conversation I had with Ken Hughes about Nixon. It's the two parties often lead by misdirection. And what we have is a situation where the more inflammatory members of the party serve the role of drumming up votes from the base and campaign funding, and the moderates in the party ensure the stuff their base is voting for never makes it into legislation. And in this sense... Tools like the filibuster are actually pretty useful for keeping the fringe minority of partisans from forcing their agenda into law. However, we cannot argue that this makes for good government. And getting back to my conversation with Arjun in the last episode, when we accompany this with a media landscape that favors polarizing content, we have two parties who are, in essence, governing more by what they can keep the other party from doing than what they'll do. And, you know, there's a certain amount of latent anger in America right now, and a lot of it has to do with a system that no longer works for the majority of us. And instead of focusing on the sources of this anger, our two parties have chosen to channel it to the other side by branding their opponents as a threat to the nation. And there are no shortage of opportunistic leaders in history who've harnessed similar anger to lead their country into war. It's just rare that this war would be with their own country. And to me, it really only strengthens my conviction that breaking the hold the two parties have on our electoral system is essential to the survival of a nation. You can't run on being the lesser of two evils when there are three or more evils out there. Fun stuff, folks. We're continuing the streak of former guests next week with my favorite Trump-loving Frenchman, and we're going to talk a lot about this. Hope you'll join me. As always, music courtesy of QuellerTac. YDHTY's editorial advisor is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced for a limited time only by the big Gino, Jason Putney, Killing Snakes and producing podcasts down in North Carolina, United States of America. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Ooh, bye bye.